If you have your Bible with you, turn to John chapter 18. This isn't the Palm Sunday story, but it comes just after Palm Sunday. And the reason I want to focus on this story is because the Easter week story, the Holy Week story, is a whole lot of back and forth. It's, it's like a, a spiritual battle, a spiritual game of chess where God will make a move and the enemy will make a move and God will take two steps and the enemy will take several steps. This is one of the difficult steps, but we got to walk through the difficult steps if we're going to claim and live in and enjoy the fullness of those victory steps. You know, not just is this holy week like a game of chess, but if I'm honest, I think the spiritual life is like a game of chess too. We give our lives to God, and if we expect everything is going to be fine and dandy and happy from there, then we're doing it wrong. Because the Scriptures tell us that we have an adversary an enemy, someone else who's trying to trip us and trap us. For example, over the last few weeks, I've been uh, experiencing an increased amount of anxiety in my life. I've felt it. I've seen it. Once I named it, I was able to address it and start to do something about it. Some of that anxiety centered around Sunday morning and church and all kinds of questions about who I was and what's happening and those kind of things. And so last night I decided, Lord, I'm going to give you my very best. And so I'm going to uh, prepare as best I can. We rented a movie and it looked fantastic. But as soon as it started, I thought, man, this is an intense movie. This is going to put my heart in a not good place. Nothing wrong with the movie. Just I wanted to kind of... Uh, uh, go to bed peacefully rather than uh, watching this intense movie. I'll watch it this afternoon because I think it's going to be good. And I went to bed early because I wanted to go to bed peacefully. Thinking like, God, that's a good move. I'm helping manage this little attack from the enemy in terms of anxiety. I get up early. I do my routine. I'm up at five. I'm reading the scriptures, having a sweet time with the Lord. Lord, I'm ready. I'm feeling at peace. At about 7 o'clock this morning, I'm sitting on the couch, I hear this crash. <laughs> and the inside of Tracy's closet, the shelves just fall. And my first thought is, nice try. <laughs> God, it's your move now. Because often, the spiritual life is like a game of chess, right? God is moving, God ultimately wins, but we have an adversary who's on the move as well. Palm Sunday. The day that we remember today was God's move. He performed a miracle. A crowd saw him and recognized and worshipped. They worshipped in a deep way. They knew that they needed saving. And so they shouted, Hosanna, which means God save us and save us now. They are waving the palm branches, 
which were the, 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 the symbol of the nation. And they were lying those, those palm branches down symbolically to say, you're our king. God's move. But as the week continued, it became the enemy's turn. And during this holy week, the enemy made some moves. And if we're honest, he made some pretty good moves that left many who followed Jesus feeling trapped, feeling defeated, and feeling lost. In fact, I challenge you this week, every day, read a little part of the Holy Week story and consider the move that is happening in the spiritual. God's making some moves. The enemy's making some moves. In this scripture today, the enemy makes a big move, and it feels like for the people of God that Jesus is in checkmate, that Jesus has been trapped, there's no way out. The worst that could happen is happening. And all those who'd seen Jesus, all those who'd followed Jesus, all those who'd been close to Jesus thought that they were in checkmate. Maybe it feels for you like you're in checkmate. It's been a hard year emotionally. You're in checkmate. Maybe finances aren't where they should be and you feel in checkmate. Maybe relationships are severed and are struggling and it feels like you're in checkmate. But here, the whole story. Jesus always wins. It may feel like we're in checkmate, but we're not. On the Friday, he felt trapped. The followers felt in checkmate. But on the Sunday, Jesus had worked a great comeback, a great victory, and won once and for all. But I want to ask the question today as we look at the story of how it seemed like Jesus was been put in checkmate. How are we to respond by Jesus's example when we're in checkmate? Three things that I want to share about how we should react when the enemy makes his move. First of all, John chapter 18, verse 1, we proceed with prayer. When you're feeling trapped, when you're feeling stuck, when you're feeling in checkmate, proceed with prayer. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples. What did Jesus 
said, well, he hadn't been having a conversation with his disciples. He hadn't said anything to them other than, will you come and pray with me? But they fell asleep. And so the said that John is talking about is the conversation that God was having with his father in prayer. Before he walks into this trap that seems to put him in checkmate, he's talking with his father in prayer. And he's praying for himself. And he's praying for the world. And he's praying for his disciples. And in the hardest moment of his life, when it has been fully revealed all the power that he has, and he is keenly aware of everything that's going on, he proceeds into what is ahead in prayer. He's inviting the peace of God into his anxiety. And when the peace of God enters a person's life, he cannot be anxious because peace pushes out anxiety. Jesus knew that a tough few days were ahead, and so he proceeds with prayer. It said that he went with his disciples after praying, and I imagine still praying, across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Now, I don't want to move too quickly through this because something is very, very significant and symbolic about the Kidron Valley. It's on the east of Jerusalem, on the west of Mount Olives. In the Kidron Valley, there was a little brook, a small stream, a little river, that throughout a lot of the year had no water in it. It was small, it was dry. It was also Passover. And at Passover, all the Jews would come to Jerusalem from thousands of miles around and they would sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle it with the lamb's blood as an act of uh, worship to God. They made a sacrifice to God to try and atone for their sins. That was happening in the temple. The Kidron Valley is one of the valleys at the base of the temple that has a brook in it. What would often happen, according to uh, sources outside of Scripture, historical manuscripts, is that all the blood of these sacrificial lambs would drain off through a little channel in the temple that ran through the Kidron Valley. So it's quite likely that as Jesus is in the Kidron Valley going to the Garden of Gethsemane, this little brook is full of water and blood. Don't, don't lose the symbolism of that because Jesus is just going to give his life 
once and for all as the atonement for our sins. He is the sacrificial lamb, and as he's going there, he looks to his right, to his left, whatever, to the floor, and he sees this little brook with the blood of lambs. What does that mean? That could mean all kinds of things. For me, there's great power in that symbolism. You know, some of us have just finished a little Bible study through you version about artifacts that prove the resurrection. For me, the proof of the resurrection isn't in the artifacts. It's in the depth of the story. And here's Jesus walking towards his purpose as our sacrificial lamb, seeing the blood that his people have sacrificed for years and years And he says, I'm going to do it once and for all. He's heading towards his purpose. That was his purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he sits there and he's hanging out with his disciples. And they went in probably to this gate They were hanging out, talking, praying. You can imagine the the energy in that place. Verse 2, it says, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with the disciples. Jesus is prayerfully entering his purpose. He sees his purpose as the the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the earth. And he goes to this very familiar place in the garden where he and the disciples had hung out a lot. What's interesting about that is, as it says, Judas knew where that was. Why is that significant? Because Jesus knew that Judas knew where that was. If Jesus was looking to run, if he was looking to bail on his purpose, it wouldn't have taken much to go somewhere else that Judas didn't know about. But Jesus was focused on his purpose And he was walking into his purpose with prayer. God has a purpose for you. God has a plan for your life. So often, we spend a lot of time wondering about that purpose. What is it? Where is it? Who is it? All those kind of questions. We keep asking, what's the next step? Is the next move I make a right one or a wrong one? Is the next move I make going to move the kingdom of God forward? Or will it play into the enemy's hand? We focus on our purpose or we focus on the next step. But what Jesus is focused on is prayer. I'm going to walk into my purpose as the sacrificial lamb of God, and I'm going to walk into it with prayer. 
Here's the first thing that I think we need to understand and do when we feel caught in checkmate. Proceed into your purpose with prayer. Does it feel like you're in checkmate? Pray. Are you concerned about the next step? Pray. Put the focus on prayer. The enemy's on the move. Verse 3. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. First thing we must do when we're in checkmate is proceed with prayer. The second thing we must do is lean into a power and lean into the power and lean into God's power that is more powerful than any other power. Proceed with prayer and lean into God's power and submit meekly to his power. What's happening now is a power play. So Judas shows up and he took a company of soldiers with him. This is a, a technical word in the Roman military. He had a cohort of soldiers with him, which is about one-tenth of a legion. And a legion was about 6,000 people. So it's quite possible that there was up to 600 soldiers who were in, around, and surrounding the garden. Were they all in the garden? That's probably a little bit of a stretch. But they were on alert, and they were ready to move. Think about this. you got one Jewish carpenter and 600 Roman soldiers. What's happening there? It's a power play. He says also he's brought with him some folks from the high priest's office. These are probably the temple police. The temple police had some authority that were given by the religious leaders. But perhaps, honestly, they were more like the more cops. There was another group of people as well. Some of the, the friends of the high priests. Some people who'd come along because they knew that there was a show that something was going down and they wanted to watch it. In the garden, it was a power play. You go. One Jewish carpenter and 600 soldiers and a bunch of mall cops and a bunch of hangers-on who want to see the show. And they come with symbols of power. They had lanterns, which 
they needed because it was dark. But they had torches as well, which was a lot more powerful than lanterns. And torches was things that you burnt stuff down with. If you were going to find someone who was hiding, you would take a torch into the bush and see if they were there. And it says as well that they had weapons, that they were armed. This was a show of power. And the enemy was making his move with all the power that he could muster. And so Jesus stands there looking at this show of power. And he's not influenced or intimidated by the show of earthly power at all. If he was, maybe he hides. If he was, maybe he runs. But he gets out right in front of them. And he says, who is it you're looking for? He knows. It says that everything is aware to him in this moment. But he wants them to ask. He's playing their game a little bit to show them how empty all human power is against the power of God. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. And then Jesus says these three words that demonstrate his power. I think, honestly, Jesus was setting them up for this. And I don't think Jesus says these words with fear, with trembling, with trepidation. I think he stands there. I think he stands tall. I think he stands confidently. And with everything that he is and all the power of God in him, he says, I am he. Here I am. This phrase, I am he, is a phrase that contains all kinds of power. Because way back when in Exodus 3, when God was calling Moses, Moses says, God, who are you? Who shall I say has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Jesus is saying in this moment, I am he, I am God, I have the power of God with me. Judas, who betrayed him, was also there. I think it's Mark's gospel that says here that Judas went up to him and kissed him, as if to say, this is him. It was rather a foolish act because everybody knew in that garden who Jesus was. Verse 6, get this. When Jesus told them, I in he, they stepped back. A more accurate translation of that word is staggered back and fell to the ground. Huh. Isn't that amazing? There is a power play going on in this garden. One Jewish carpenter against hundreds of Romans of soldiers and a bunch of temple police and people. And one phrase, I am, defeats 
all that power. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that speak to the power of God? When we're in checkmate, when it feels like we're losing, when we're caught in a power play, remember that the power of God is always greater than the power of our opponent. The scripture says, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? So when it feels like we're getting caught in checkmate by a power that feels bigger than us, know that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I am he. Our job when it feels like we're going to be trapped, is to submit meekly to the power of God. Do not quit and give in to the power of the enemy. Do not run or hide. Stand strong. And say, he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Because the power of God defeats the power of the enemy every time. There was a power play going on. Hundreds of soldiers fully armed with all their weapons. And one phrase from Jesus knocks them out. When it feels like you're in checkmate, keep on praying, but submit yourself to the power of God. Because if he is with us, then who can be against us? If Jesus wanted to run, if Jesus wanted to escape, If the disciples wanted to bolt, this was their moment. The enemy was on the floor. They'd fallen to the ground, but Jesus doesn't run. And he doesn't quit. And he doesn't bail. Because if he did bail, then that would give the enemy another move. And if Jesus kept running from his purpose, the enemy would win. But Jesus doesn't escape when he has the chance. He asks them again, who is it you are seeking? My guess is when they said Jesus, this time they were sitting down so they didn't fall over again. I told you, Jesus replied, I am he. If you are looking for me, which they were, Jesus leads into the conversation. Then let these others go. Those who've been with me. Those who followed me. Those who've loved me. Let them go. That was a move by God. It could have been that he said, okay, if I'm going down, you're all going down with me. But that wasn't the plan of God. So with all the authority and the power that he now had in this setting, he said, let them go. 
be easy on them. He knew that their time hadn't yet come. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the words that he'd earlier said in John, I have not lost one of those that you have given to me. That was one of the things that he prayed to his father. When it feels like you're facing checkmate, proceed with prayer. Submit meekly to God's power and then embrace what's ahead courageously. As there was two kind of power dynamics at play in the garden, there was apparently two courageous acts. One that had the courage of conviction and one that had the courage of stupidity. It was Simon Peter who was courageous but stupid. Then Simon Peter, it says, verse 10, who had a sword, drew it. The word for sword here suggests it was more of a dagger than a sword. You had this huge army with all their weapons. <laughs> and this guy shows up with a dagger. But Peter's passionate, and he's courageous, all right. And maybe he thinks because the soldiers are still on the ground that they got a chance. <laughs> and so he takes the first swing, and he cuts off one of the centurion's ears. It's his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not going to drink the cup that my father has given to me? Other tellings of this story say that Jesus actually healed the God's ear. And honestly, it's probably a good job that Jesus did heal him. Because if Jesus hadn't healed the ear, then probably Peter was going to get arrested. And quite possibly there would have been four crosses on Golgotha because Peter would have been on one. He was courageous. He said he'd be loyal. But he had the courage of stupidity. Jesus has... Another kind of courage. It's what we'll call the courage of the cup. Put your sword away, Peter. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. We don't return evil for evil. We don't further strengthen the enemies we have. We love our enemies. Put your sword away, Peter. Because I'm going to embrace a different kind of courage. And the courage that Jesus embraced was the courage of the cup. Am I not to drink the cup? The purpose. The plan. The hopes. This cup was called the cup of suffering. 
Man, did it mean a painful, difficult, harrowing suffering for Jesus on a big, ugly, wooden cross. As he says, I'm going to drink of the cup. It's quite likely that a lot of his disciples, a lot of the crowd, a lot of the people who've been with him on Palm Sunday thought, that's it, it's over, we're in checkmate, we're done. But Jesus had the courage to go forward, to walk into what looked like defeat, to stare evil in the face, to look into the loss. Why? Because he knew that the game was not over. So often it is so easy for us to feel like we're caught in checkmate. And when we're feeling that way, we must proceed with prayer. We must lean into the power of God rather than succumb to the power of the evil one. We must summon the courage of God, not the courage of stupidity that wants to bail, that wants to make decisions that will lead to loss. But as we go into checkmate, let's remember that the game is never over until God says it's over. We have never lost when God has the final say. The disciples thought, surely there cannot be any other greater checkmate than death. It's done. It's over. But we serve the God of the comeback. Our king is a comeback king who when it feels like it's over, when it feels like we're in checkmate, knows the moves to make to bring us to victory. That's what Easter's about. That's what we'll celebrate next week. That's what the Palm Sunday worshipers were looking forward to. But before then, there's a whole lot of moves. Ones that hurt. Ones that look like they're heading to defeat. Ones that feel like they're putting us in checkmate. But the game's never over until God says it's over.